This is the Chronicles Podcast, a production of Chronicles Magazine, the original outlet for paleoconservative thought and a bastion of the authentic right in America. Welcome, everybody, to the first episode of Chronicles Magazine podcast. This project is going to be sort of the media arm for the magazine itself. We have a lot planned for this And our goal as of now is to do this once a week, and we're going to have a heavy focus on the issues themselves. So that means we're going to spend time talking with the the editors and the various writers and columnists for the magazine. Um, But we do want to make room for some current events and trends, things that are more suitable for this format that you can't necessarily get into the magazine in a timely fashion. So all that said, my name is CJ, and I have with me, of course, uh, Chronicle's executive editor, Ed Welsh, and the magazine's editor-in-chief, the legendary Paul Gottfried. So for this episode, um, we wanted to just give a rundown on the history of Chronicles, and this might even be a two-episode, or I don't know if we're going to squeeze it all in here, but what is Chronicles, what was Chronicles, and what role did it play over the last 30 years? There's been a lot of tension and strife and waging of battles in the conservative movement and Chronicles was right there on the front lines of that. And so I want to get into that a little bit. So that said, part of the motivating um, factor for this specific topic was the January issue of the Chronicles magazine, which if you're listening to this and you're not subscribed to, you need to get this just for the January magazine itself. I would I would even call and and try to get that too, because I don't know if I don't know the rules on that, but you'll need to pick this up because that's possible. You can call in and get uh, some back issues from our from our mm-hmm. subscription management. Yeah, and people need to do it because I think as as the right becomes more awakened with just the insanity of the left, people are going to want to know where they came from, where the right came from, because it didn't start with Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been here for a long time, and Chronicles was on the cutting edge for a long time. So let's let's start there, um, Paul. With you, it was originally published by the Rockford Institute. What was the Rockford Institute? Yeah. Um, having uh, taught at Rockford College, uh, which was the, the institution out of which the, um, uh, the Rockford Institute came, uh, I sort of had a, uh, uh, an observer's view of what was going on even in the 1970s. And the president of Rockford College, John Howard, who came from a distinguished uh, Midwestern family, one which in fact had Abraham Lincoln uh, on retainer as, as their family attorney, um, was uh, the person who founded the Rockford Institute. Um, if he had had his druthers, um, he would have turned Rockford College into something like Hillsdale, uh, which in many ways was his model. Um, but uh, this was, was found out that this was not possible at an institution at which most of the faculty were liberal Democrats, even then. Uh, he did hire several uh, conservative professors, of whom I was one um, at the time, but that really did not um, turn things around uh, decisively in his favor. Um, and uh, what he what he did at that point was found the Rockford Institute, as I say, as a kind of fallback or default um, uh, institution that would uh, become a vehicle for his conservative ideas. Now he was not all that far to the right. Um, and he was a close friend of Fulner. He was uh, a fan of the Heritage Foundation, as well as um, a, an admirer of what was being done at Hillsdale College. Um, but when he, when, he found, when he founded the Rockford Institute, he tried to remain president for a while. It didn't work. Um, and then he finally resigned from the college, uh, where he had served many years as president without taking a salary because of his family's wealth. And he became head of the Rockford Institute in the mid-1970s. Um, once he founded that institute, the question was, you know, exactly what were they going to do? <laughs> and they decided to found a publication. And the person whom we hired um, uh, to, to run this publication was Leopold Tiermond, who was a famous Polish novelist uh, who had gone into exile. He had written satirically and contemptuously of the communist regime. Uh, he was then living in New York married to a much younger wife and writing occasionally for the New Yorker um, at a time when you could still publish anti-communist screeds in the New Yorker magazine, <laughs> which has now become, you know, a, a voice of the, uh, uh, of the quintessential woke left. 
But back then, it was still possible, you know, to publish anti-communist things uh, in the New Yorker. Um, and he was hired away by John Howard. He came to Rockford with his wife and, you know, tried to adjust to what I, I suspect Leopold found to be a uh, 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 an unexpectedly different middle American uh, kind of environment. Um, my, my late wife and I were close friends of the Tiramans for, for a number of years. Um, and I also agreed to write for his magazine, which uh, became Chronicles. <laughs> he named it Chronicles. And the, the early uh, issues, I think Ed is holding on to some of them, um, look like, you know, something you would turn out in a high school. I mean, it was very primitive sketching and the uh, first one right here. Right, right there. And the printing is, you know, is not very It's elegant. on math paper. This is uh, September 1977. <laughs> So seven, so seventy-seven. That's so that's the year it, it ran its first issue. Okay, right. We're in forty-six year this year. Forty-six okay. years old, right? And last year we celebrated our forty-fifth anniversary. Um, and uh, I, I can say I, I did have the pleasure or the displeasure of contributing to some of the early issues. And I've always wondered how many people, you know, ever bothered to read them. Uh, the magazine finally became, uh, they, they got to add more money so it was possible, but it finally became uh, something that looks like the Chronicles that we now put out. Uh, by 1980, it started yeah. to look like an actual magazine. It went right. fully <laughs> monthly, started to be sold on, um, started to be sold in, in bookstore, in the news, news magazine rack and stuff like that. And it started to be a contemporary of at the time commentary national review and other magazines right. like that mm -hmm. and in yeah. the 80s it also we should also mention became very prominent because in the 80s it started to um run a a two prizes the ingersoll prize well what was the name of the other prize paul the ingersoll prize and the, there were two ingersoll prizes one, oh, yes. one that was given for literature the other for thought yeah one one after t.s Eliot, one after uh, richard weaver right so um, yeah, so, and that was, that was a big deal. They, you know, on the back of uh, the January issue, there are some pictures of some of the uh, mm -hmm. black tie dinners, which were given at the time, George Lewis Borges and, and many prominent VS Nepal, prominent literary figures at the time were recipients, political figures, um, Ed Fulner of Heritage, James Burnham, you know, Robert Nisbet. I mean, it was, it was a big deal in the eighties. Um, mm -hmm. and it was reported on by the New York times and, was considered one of the preeminent literary prizes by a conservative institution in the country at the time. Yeah. So, and so, well, I'm I, sorry, go ahead. No, I just wanted, I, I wanted to clarify a little bit too, before we get into the eighties, I wanted to talk about um, Tiermond um, just to set the context a little bit for mm -hmm. who he was, because when people look at the conservative movement, um, almost nobody knows who he is and it's hard to get their hands on his writings. So he was, he was Polish, right, Ed? That's right. I, this is his um, this is his 1954 diary, uh, which mm -hmm. I read recently. And then the picture of him on this is him as a jazz singer in Poland. And he was quite a unique figure, kind of an adventurer in a rogue. I think it's fair to say mm -hmm. who grew up. He was born in 1920 um, in Warsaw, a Jewish family, an assimilationist Jewish family, which was kind of a uh, Catholicizing Jewish family. And Tierman himself. Um, would retain many of those features in his life too. He would often um, talk about in his diary when he would um, feel the need to commune with God, he would go into a, a Catholic uh, a church and pray to God and stuff like this, even though he was Jewish. But he was born in 1920. He grew up during World War II, and he was part of the Polish resistance in his, his early 20s. And um, so he was born in Warsaw. And then in, uh, he was, while he was fighting for the Polish resistance, um, and the Polish resistance, by the way, fought against both the, the communists and the German fascists. They were kind of enemies on both. Well, there, there, were, there were actually two different resistances. There was the home front, which home was front. a conservative resistance, which fought against the German invaders. Uh, and then, then you had, um, the, the pro-communist resistance. Mm -hmm. And, you know, by the end of the war, they were fighting each other. They were, uh, yeah. And the home front is pretty much el eliminated. One of the reasons that the Soviets make no attempt to help the, uh, the Warsaw Uprising is that they were hoping that the, so the, um, that the Germans would kill off 
the more conservative Polish nationalists who were in the resistance. Mm-hmm. My understanding is that Tierman was initially part of the left-wing resistance, and he switched sides, the right side, mm-hmm. and then he was um, when he was doing that. He, this is all of 20, 21 years old. He was mm-hmm. captured by the NKVD. It was going to be sentenced to eight years in a Soviet prison camp. And it was actually at that time, fortuitously, that uh, Germany attacked Russia. And he was freed when a prison rail car um, <laughs> came under attack. And, and you know, the, the prisoners scattered. He was able to flee into Germany. He, and this was the subject, actually, him writing um, his novels, which are semi-autobiographical, were based on sort of his wartime adventures. He came back... Um, you know, he, the Holocaust was going at the time. So he's had a, a assumed identity, identity as a Frenchman. And he worked as a waiter in Nazi Germany during mm-hmm. the World War II years. And he writes very amusingly in his diaries about him being a waiter who would essentially work as, I don't know if you'd actually call it a pimp, but he would arrange um, lays of the night for the German mm-hmm. officer corps. Mm-hmm. His way of, he talks about his way of, uh, uh, undermining the the Nazi effort was that you know if he if he got an SS officer he would find some uh, prostitute who had syphilis you know that, that, that's who we'd set them up with and it was a, just a you know a humble Wehrmacht soldier maybe with just gonorrhea or something like that <laughs> um, so then you know he he basically traveled around throughout these years working um, at various times as part of various resistance movements in Poland Russia Germany France. And Norway, he tried to flee to Norway and he was captured and he was sentenced there to a the, the Nazi um, concentration camp Greeny, I think it's called. And then he was able to escape from that and he joined the Norwegian resistance. He had um, false identity papers as a Lithuanian at the time and worked in a, um, a, a warehouse in Oslo. Um, and, you know, he has got lots of um, his stories, you know, his novels are very, uh, they were very risque at the time. He would address sexual matters very forthrightly. Um, he depicts a very corrupt culture in both this World War II era. And then, you know, when he'd write later of um, Poland under the, under the communist occupation. Um, and he himself participated in some pretty, um, you know, risque sexual activities. He talks about one particular uh, time when in 1945, he was living in Oslo under this assumed identity, um, part of in, you know, this Norwegian resistance. And he picked up a woman, uh, Norwegian woman, and she took, him, she took him to what was essentially an orgy. And he found himself <laughs> in this orgy at the end of, it was near the end of the war and the Nazis were despairing at that time. And there was just sort of like an end of an era, um, you know, uh, you know, last fling going on. So he was at this orgy and he was shocked to discover when he was invited in that there were these SS officers <laughs> in this orgy and his girlfriend at the time was undressing him and he was afraid that he would be discovered as a Jew. <laughs> so he fled, you know, uh, out of the, out of this thing, you know, as fast as his legs could take him. So this was him at, you know, 24 years old and then the war ended. And then later that year he worked, he went back to Poland and that was the year at which um, this magazine had been started called Universal Weekly. And it was basically a Catholic weekly news magazine, much like Time Magazine. And it was founded under the auspices of the Catholic Church, although not explicitly, um, not explicitly just all on Catholic subjects. It was an anti-communist weekly magazine started in 1945. And it continued to be, and so Tierman uh, joined that. It was, um, it was founded by the um, cardinal at the time, Adam Stefan Safia, who was the one who um, gave the ordination for John Paul II. Mm-hmm. And so that was a founded, that was a very um, important part of Tierman's life. And he writes about that as being, it was a weekly who was, that was writing about cultural issues, opposing the communist culture, which was taking, which was taking over in Poland at the time. And he continued to write for them. He was among its founding, founding staff. And really the communists, uh, he writes about in his diary in 1945, this, he started this diary in the year after the magazine staff was entirely fired. Mm-hmm. And it switched from a, say, conservative magazine 
anti-communist to the communists who were in power at the time, liquidated the staff and they made it a left-wing communist magazine. The magazine exists to this day in Poland. It was renamed from Universal Weekly to the Common Weekly, and it still kind of has a left-wing uh, character. But mm-hmm. at the time, mm-hmm. it was conservative. And Tierman writes about um, how he he was inspired um, by some of the conservative magazines and writers who were appearing at that time. He cited specifically Encounter magazine and the work of James Burnham, who was mm-hmm. a former uh, Marxist who you know turned to the right and started uh, working on National Review. And Burnham himself, you know, became important to the history of Chronicles and his thought. But, um, you know, the thing about Tierman and Universal Weekly, this was a weekly news magazine which continued to operate even as the communists took power in 1950 mm-hmm. and continued to critique. And it was only in 1953 when the communists really cracked down on it. And so he, he was an opponent of both Nazi and communist ideology, totalitarian ideology. And so when he came to America in 1966, he started writing for um, many um, of the prominent, because he was a well-known, famous Polish novelist at that time. And he's an excellent writer, although his, you know, English is not his first language. So when he switched over to English, he kind of has a, as many mm. Polish writers do, very convoluted style, really mm-hmm. long, long sentences, convoluted. So some of his, some of his writing can, can be a little bit hard to follow, but I think it was still very brilliant. Um, but in 66, he wrote for New Yorker, Commentary, the New York Times, and he was concerned about what he saw was the communist influence, the leftist drift, and he wanted to start his own um, Universal Weekly. He wanted to recapture that as an anti-communist magazine, and that's what Chronicles actually became. And similarly, it was in the American heartland, just like Warsaw was you know, far enough away from both Nazi Berlin as well as Moscow to have some independence from those power centers. So Chronicles was in Rockford, Illinois, which was then the center of the country, the manufacturing base of the country. And it had some distance from the establishment, um, the East Coast establishment, which was very left-wing. And even in its conservative incarnation was sort of left-wing conservative or neoconservative. Let, let me let me interject here and ask this um, to either one of you. What was the ge- was the geographical location of Chronicles at the time? Was that the primary thing that set it apart from like National Review, which also had um, set itself up as sort of an anti-communist publication? Yeah, I, I think that's true. I mean, having lived in Rockford at the time, <laughs> being associated with both the college and the uh, the publication, um, I think that was uh, that was the way. Uh, the Rockford Institute and Chronicles defined itself that, you know, it was it was conservatism in the American heartland. But as long as Tierman was there, it was not um, different, philosophically different from, let's say, National Review um, or other conservative magazines. Um, the, the 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 real split would come, you know, after his death, um, because I, I think he was, you know, he was very he, he celebrated America as he saw it. Um, he was um, uh, he was very reluctant to criticize the United States unless he was criticizing the left. He absolutely despised the hippies. He would, would say they hated America and he didn't like the anti-war movement because they were anti-American. And his views in many ways dovetailed with those of John Howard, whose cultural experience was vastly different from his, but, you know, who arrived at pretty much the same political position that Leopold did. So, you know, they were able to work together quite well in this period, but I, I, don't, I don't find that much of a policy or philosophical difference between Chronicles in its early years, you know, and what one would have read in National Review. Commentary was perhaps a little different because it went off in a neoconservative direction, uh, more so than Leopold would have wanted. You know, I, I think, say, though, I think there was the seeds of a difference. I, I think that the, the right, both sides were so anti-communist at the time that that was a unifying, overall right. unifying factor in the 1980s, mm. right? Um, and, you know, Tierman in, in his, um, you know, as we published some of these essays in this issue, in 1977, he talks about two cultures dividing. That's the first essay we published. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a 1979 issue. And he talks about the, the left and the right dividing into irre- irreconcilable 
visions of the future. And he talked about how um, um, what he called American culture was being overwhelmed by liberal culture, which he saw as something completely mm -hmm. different. Mm -hmm. And at the time, despite the fact that, you know, as a young man, he, you know, he had this very sexually permissive, uh, promiscuous and libertine outlook and things. By 1979, he had become very, the opposite, very socially conservative. Mm -hmm. And in this essay in 79, you know, he, writing, the breakdown of sexual conventions means not only that people can do to their bodies what they wish, but that sooner or later entails the collapse of everything built on rule, custom, tradition, even the social contract itself, that it ultimately cancels both human warmth and those bondings on which his sense of life rests. I'd also say about the the, the Midwest placement of the Rockford Institute and Chronicles, what, you know, the America First movement and the old right had its groundings in the American Midwest as well. And some of the themes that Chronicles would distinguish itself upon, you know, from the East Coast, and especially neoconservatives, were anti-interventionism, which was the same as the, the old right had that same viewpoint. Mm. Uh, the fact that Rockford was a manufacturing town and the fact that the, the Ingersoll Awards were uh, sponsored by a big manufacturer made mm -hmm. them much more um, protectionist and against free trade than I think the mainstream establishment was on the East Coast. And these, these things um, are critical of immigration as undermining American labor and the heartland. So some of these big issues were there from the beginning, I would say, but were probably overwhelmed by a desire to break into the conservative establishment, which is primarily on the East Coast, and the, uni the uniting desire to fight communism. Yeah, I, I think I think Ed is right about this. I think it was implicit, you know, that uh, this direction that would later, uh, uh, in which the magazine would go after Tom Fleming took over from Tierman, Tierman died, and Fleming became uh, pretty much called the shots. The, the magazine would move in a paleoconservative direction. It did mm -hmm. not in the early years, however, um, uh, although I think the break with the establishment was already um, uh, implicit in the uh, defense of, of uh, Emmy Bradford against the neoconservatives in 1981. Yeah, well, let's, and, yeah, we're uh, going to, we're going to jump attention. <laughs> we're going to jump into that. I think that's an interesting to emphasize because Chronicles is always thought of as the, more right-wing outlet for conservative thought. I mean, mm -hmm. it's it, it it's when people think of Chronicles, they're thinking they're thinking Sam Francis, they're thinking the you know the Reagan years, the mid nineteen nineties. Right. Um, but before all that, it was it was basically geographically distinct, and obviously there's some geographically driven issues that can distinguish it. But for the most part, they wouldn't be in um, a, a, a set of tension with you know the National Review crowd or anything like that. People are generally on a unified anti-communist uh, mm -hmm. boat. Mm -hmm. Yes, correct. Was more unified. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So what happened then? So what 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 year did Tierman die? Eighty-five is when mm -hmm. Tierman. Uh, died and okay. um, Fleming took over and he was the editor for 30 years. Although, yep. And that's when the tensions really began and there's some politics going on with other, uh, I, I, and this is one of the things I wanted to talk about too, was you, there, there's, I mean, if it was two years ago, that first things um, published an essay on the 30 year celebration of the first things. Um, and they brought up Chronicles because Chronicles is part of that past. So maybe, mm -hmm. Maybe let's start with Paul, but then we're going to shift to Ed because he wrote the response to first thing. So, Paul, do you want to comment right. on that, the beginning stages of that tension? Yeah, I think the read for 81, you know, you were saying, was that the start of it? Right. I would think I would think it would start in 1981, uh, although, although I think what you really have is sort of a kind of ripple, <laughs> ripple effect at, at uh, Chronicles. As long as Tierman was in charge, there was uh, efforts made to, you know, sort of coordinate what we were doing with uh with the uh, New York Washington conservative establishment. And both of you are right. The anti-communism sort of overshadows everything else. Mm -hmm. And uh, the magazine was strongly interventionist. John Howard until his last day on earth was a strong interventionist. He strongly supported the war in Iraq. So, uh, you know, by then of course, the, the John Howard Institute had separated from the Rockford Institute. So, uh, uh, what hap happens in the 1980s is that there, there are incidents that occur that have critical repercussions. One of them is the, is the Bradford um, 
incident, um, which does not cause Chronicles to become paleoconservative, but it certainly creates questions about continued cooperation with a conservative movement that was now being taken over, obviously, by neoconservatives. Um, then you have Terman's death in 1985. There's obviously there's obvious tensions between Tom Fleming and, and Tierman because uh, Tom represents a more of a paleoconservative direction. As I always tell people, Tierman did not want to name me editor because he thought I was uh, a very uh, antagonistic toward the neoconservatives. But in fact, I was much less so than the person who succeeds him uh, and is quite willing to break from them. Um, and even declare war on them. And by the uh, way, Tom Fleming, of course, he was the one of the founding editors, I believe, of the Southern Partisan, which gets in right. the Bradford thing. This issue about how the Civil War is mm -hmm. interpreted in American history, whereas the East Coast establishment, say maybe the Northern conservatives, you say, would lionize Lincoln as you know the Gettysburg Address is somehow on par with the founding documents and mm -hmm. statements mm -hmm. about equality. Whereas, you know, the, the Southern conservatives much more emphasized how Lincoln's war, you know, they had a re, what we call a revisionist uh, view of the Civil War. Lincoln's war was brutal, unnecessary, and um, probably caused the death of America as an actual republic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's exactly their, their position. That was Fleming's position. Yeah. Uh, but he also was, was very critical of the neoconservatives. Uh, because the neoconservatives did not like the southern the southern conservatives, so I, I think the end uh, he was it was also uh, heavily influenced uh, by the older right, you know, the interwar right, which was right. critical of foreign intervention and generally isolationist. The American First also, Committee and stuff who were based right. around the Midwest. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I mean, they were sort of like returning to this Midwestern tradition. This is not so much Southern; it's Midwestern tradition of isolation. And that's why you get a you know, Chronicles is read, you know, appreciated a lot by both the Southern and the Midwestern mm -hmm. conservatives. That's why we kind of think of ourselves as heartland conservatives. And by the way, that view of Lincoln, I would say, is still. I mean, that's still a part of Chronicles' view today, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. separates us and causes conflict with. Um, some other, you know, like um, the West Coast Straussians who run the Claremont uh, Review and American Greatness, they come from that uh, Harry Jaffa school of historiography, which elevates Lincoln. And that is, even though we agree on many things politically today in the fight against the left, we disagree about these fundamental issues about history and American history. Mm -hmm. That's exactly uh, the case. Uh, although let, let me say that I do not hate Lincoln as much as some of my fellow paleoconservatives, although I think the war was a disaster and was entirely avoidable. Um, and I do blame Lincoln more than anyone else for the, uh, uh, for the, for the uh, catastrophe of the American uh, Civil War. But uh, I, I, th I think by, by as soon as soon after Leopold's death, the magazine takes on what becomes an obvious paleoconservative cast. We also get get money from um, from Southern uh, protectionist uh, uh, from from the late industries and stuff like right exactly <laughs> the late nineteen eighties on, and then uh, as Ed reminded me, it was, it was in nineteen eighty nine that you have the the conflict with uh, Pastor Newhouse and. Uh, the, the, Man the Manhattan branch of the Rockford Institute. And there, there is a, uh, uh, a, a, a serious split, although, you know, John Howard and Alan Carlson, uh, both of whom did try to get along for a long time with the neoconservatives, were instrumental, you know, in sort of, in sort of pushing the issue because Pastor Newhouse um, had not been doing his job properly. And in fact, was, was, uh, discouraging potential donors from giving money to the Rockford Institute, uh, which by then he was attacking as a racist organization. So, so uh, hey, hey, Paul, so who who was Pastor Newhouse and what role does he play in all this? Yeah, no, he, he was a uh, he, he began as a Lutheran pastor uh, who was politically on the right. He was part and, of the he was at he was at Rockford. Is that right? Uh, you no, know, he was never at it was never, was really never at Rockford, Rockford okay. except to visit. <laughs> um, but he, he was an activist. He also had collaborated with Peter Berger um, on some so sociological writing on religious sociology, the sociology of religion. Uh, he was an extremely learned man and he was a very devout Christian. But politically, he was on the left. 
And uh, he was part of the anti-war movement. He had been a friend of Martin Luther King. He had been involved in demonstrations against segregation and so forth. Uh, and he and Fleming immediately clashed. Um, and, uh, you know, so this, I, so I this was after so this was after Fleming became the editor. Right. right. I, I the think thing is, before Fleming became the editor, Chronicles had an offshoot or, you know, the Rockford Institute had this offshoot organization based in, in New York, which was sort of like Casinas, the New York branch of the Rockford Institute, which was Pastor right. John Newhouse's Institute for Religion and Life or something like that. I can't remember exactly yeah. what it was called. Right. And, that, that was something, Tierman Ty was one of his last acts arranged. Uh, right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and Tierman is the one, of course, who had all these connections with the East Coast, whereas mm -hmm. Fleming much more, Fleming himself being a Midwesterner who also lived in the South for far of his life. And, and so, um, Really, it was, you know, after Tierman's death, Newhouse and, and Fleming clashed quite a bit. And Newhouse's peers were sort of the, the New York establishment at the time. He was, he was good friends with commentary editor Norman Horitz. And it was the clash happened. Really, it was when in 1989, um, Fleming, here it is. Fleming, this issue is called Nation of Immigrants right here. And this was this issue of Chronicles. Um, Fleming wrote an article, very prescient, um, and we've reprinted it in this Best Chronicles, talking about the coming immigration crisis. And he, he lays it out as best as anybody could, and in a very calm, rational way, mm -hmm. just talking mm -hmm. about how this, this, you know, unless America and conservatives can get their handle, get their arms around this immigration uh, problem and form a cogent critique, it's going to undermine the American identity and really conservatism in America. So they need to address it now. Well, the reaction from these neoconservatives at commentary and, and others, and really all these people who had been attending these black tie events and everything um, in the previous uh, part of that decade, by 89, when this came out, they started to say they're going to boycott um, Chronicles. And, you know, in this article that I wrote, uh, First Things First, I wrote this article in 2019, because First Things in their 30th anniversary issue, and First Things was founded after Newhouse split from Chronicles and Rockford in 89, and then immediately after that, he founded his own magazine. It was mm -hmm. meant to be a magazine directly opposed to Chronicles. And that was that was First Things. That's right. 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 Okay. And in fact, you know, Fleming, you know, in Alan Carlson, who was president of Chronicles at the time, in his notes, Newhouse um, uh, said that he, he would oppose would work, quote, work in the future to undermine Chronicles magazine. <laughs> so that was that was a direct quote from him, you know, according to Carlson's contemporaries notes at the time. Pod Horitz, you know, said it was a letter, um, and we have a copy of this letter as well, which was sent to us. It was a letter of Pod Horitz to Newhouse saying, quote, have you seen the latest issue of Chronicles? Among other abominations, including a piece of nativist bigotry by the editor himself, it contains Two, not one, but two hymns of praise to Gore Vidal. Because Chronicles had been started actually primarily as a, as a book review, you know, because Tierman had worked for, you know, the review section of the New Yorker, mm -hmm. as well as New York Review Books, other things like that. He wanted something that was a conservative um, bulwark against that. So it would review books and cultural products. So the first issues of Chronicles and the core of it have always been book reviews. So they would review books from the left, and that really pissed, you know, reviewed books from Gore Vidal, who was an enemy of the neoconservatives and Pot Horitz. So that made him mad as well. Anyway, it was this, it was this uh, reaction um, that was really caused the break with, with, with Newhouse. So by the middle part of that year, Newhouse was looking for ways to break off from the Rockford Institute. A bunch of funding was gonna come in from these foundations and he was looking for ways, he was meeting surreptitiously with these foundations to get the funding that was supposed to go first to Rockford and then be dispersed to Newhouse's arm, sent directly to him. And so there was a big showdown where Alan Carlson, as president, confronted him about this. Uh, they couldn't get along. So, you know, as First Things points out in their, their, um, in their recounting of the incident, Carlson came in with some uh, burly security guards to the <laughs> office in New York put padlocks on the doors and uh, mm -hmm. kicked everyone out and they shut it down. So obviously there was just a break right then in the summer of uh, 89, which caused this, this um, really a war between the two sides. So the paleoconservatives were persona non grata after that point with the uh, East coast 
Neo well, but I, I might point out that in 1987, uh, Norman Pedoritz called up Catholic University of America, which was going to offer me a graduate professorship in political theory and classics, and said that I was not reliable on Israel, and therefore they should not hire me. Um, as far as I remember, I never said anything criticizing Israel, but since I was an editor of Chronicles, he probably decided I wasn't a good guy. But that was as early as 87. You know, that was it was two years before Fleming's uh, controversial article on immigration, a, an article, as you pointed out, that should not have been controversial, but was treated that way. And, and that's a good point, Paul, because, you know, e even with Emmy Bradford was also the neoconservatives undermined his appointment to the um, what was it the, the what was it with the appointment again? It was at the, um, the, the National White Endowment House, for Humanities, National Endowment for Humanities. And they undermined his appointment to that in 81. Mm -hmm. And this was still at the time throughout the 80s. These same neoconservatives were attending events at and getting awards at you know, these rock <laughs> institutes and things. So, so there was, let's say, a Cold War and underground undermining, right. making sure that oh, we're going to be friendly with these, these people, but undermine them, make sure they don't get appointments throughout the 80s. And the final break, it became a hot war in 89. That, that's correct. But then there was a uh, then, then there was an even more definitive break afterwards when there was a meeting in the New York Union Club uh, involving the late Paul Weirich, Bedoritz, Buckley and others. Uh, this was in the early 90s about what they could do to address the uh, the paleoconservative challenge, the challenge from the old right, which was undermining the movement. So that's when they really went after us. <laughs> So, Paul, did um, talk a little bit about the significance of the Bradford affair, because that's a really big um, deal in fleshing out the differences that would begin to unfold. And in the 90s became an all out war. I mean, the Bradford ordeal is, is a big one. Yeah, the, that which, which was in 1981. And that was at the beginning of the, uh, the Reagan administration. And um, it was obvious that Reagan was going to nominate uh, Mel, who's a friend, of, had been a friend of mine for this position. Um, and uh, at least initially, there wasn't that there didn't appear to be that much of a neoconservative resistance um, to this very day. I think the reason the neoconservatives went after Bradford, I think the main reason they went after him was they wanted total control uh, over that slush fund. And they wanted to put one of their guys in who would give them all the money. Whereas, you know, you have this uh, this rube from the uh, the Southland who's coming and probably has these you know, these backwood friends he's going to give money to and, you know, these uh, uh, these people who are really not part of, this, of, of the neocon crowd. So they wanted to put one of their people in charge, which they do with Bill Bennett, you know, the person whom they sort of pick out of obscurity. He was a sort of a, a uh, uh, liberal Democrat um, who wrote a, a dreadful dissertation at the University of Texas, a copy of which I still have. Uh, it's full of grammatical errors. Um, and it's it's very short. It's uh, you know pathetically short. But they uh, they picked him uh, rather than Bradford. They, then they went on a campaign of character assassination, um, and they got George Will to contribute to this. He wrote a, a nasty piece about Bradford, who rejected our values, who was opening up what had been closed questions. I can't think what would you know what, what, who probably George Will decided to close those questions. Um, uh, and, and then, you know, there, there was something else that I thought was interesting. Eric Foner wrote a, uh, an attack on Bradford, you know, as a racist. And so he had voted for, he had been a supporter of George Wallace um, in the past. And I think- And Eric Foner, Eric Foner's a Marxist. Is that right? Yeah, he's, 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 not, he's not just a Marxist. He was uh, a strong supporter of the Soviet Union, you know, and, and his, his family were communists. Mm -hmm. His uncles and his, his, uh, others in his family were communists. He was a communist sympathizer who deplored the breakup of the Soviet Union. So, so in, in, in any case, they, they, they had this um, uh, formidable force coming against Bradford, and his name was withdrawn in favor of Bill Bennett, who became the nominee uh, with the support of Gertrude Himmelfarb, Irving Kristol, and the rest of the usual suspects. Um, but what this did, of course, was drive a wedge within the conservative movement. Uh, as, as I've argued, the, 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 the neoconservatives uh, did this as an exercise of power. They won, you know, and they pretty much isolated. And, and the Southern conservatives would be driven out of the conservative movement afterwards. Uh, they've never been let back in.
Uh, now, Southern conservative means somebody like Nikki Haley. Back then, it meant someone like uh, uh, like uh, Bradford or I don't know, even Strom Thurmond. But uh, this this has all obviously changed. Um, uh, Bradford later uh, thought that I mean he was he was a very forgiving, kind uh, Southern Baptist who believed that these people really did not mean him that much. They did made a mistake, but they would make it up to him because they were basically decent. And they'd make him librarian of Congress. That never happened. They also made sure he didn't get that position afterwards. Because part of the modus operandi of neoconservatives is once they decide to go after you, they continue to go after you. This is what the communists do, you know, and they, you know, they behave exactly like communists this way. Once they decide you're going to be destroyed professionally, they just continue to come after you. So, and then of course, Mel dies soon afterwards, uh, not quite of a broken heart, but uh, you know, I think he was obviously uh, never recovered from this uh, from this from this incident. Um, but uh, I, I think, at least in the minds of those who became the paleo conservative camp, people like me and Tom Fleming, uh, this was not forgotten. Um, and I think that's what you know Leopold said that you know I just wanted to fight the neoconservatives. That was his complaint about. He was right. <laughs> I thought they were dangerous people. Uh, and they, they, they did not want dialogue. They wanted total power um, over, over the movement. <clears throat> so we, to Chairman, you know, he does talk about in his essays about what he saw as liberal culture being signified as just that, uh, a totalitarian control over mm -hmm. dialogue. I mean, he says that in his, his essay here, which we reprint. And he was trying to fight against that. But obviously he had a more accommodationist or he's trying to work with people who are potential allies, you know, than... Mm -hmm. Perhaps you or Fleming, uh, who became known as <laughs> ardent, you know, uh, enemies of the neoconservatives. I, I want to talk about Fleming and his role in just a minute. But first, I'm curious because I know from what we just talked about, there was um, a lot of tensions between first things and from in commentary and then the, the Bill Buckley cloud, crowd with the National Review. Did What was the relationship like with like the modern age people and Russell Kirk? Because he's more of a Midwesterner. It was very good. Mm -hmm. No, you know, we, we were not uh, indistinguishable. I mean, they had a separate identity, but we cooperated. Uh, I was on the editorial board of Modern Age. I was a close friend of George Panichas, who was the editor. I'd known David Collier before. Um, and, and Russell Kirk was a Bradford supporter, right? Ra oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah, he was. A, and not only was he a Bradford supporter, Harry Jaffa was a Bradford supporter. <laughs> because yeah. although they disagreed about Lincoln, uh, they were personal friends. Mm -hmm. Right. And Gene Genovese was a Marxist at the time, but was also a Bradford supporter. <laughs> <laughs> let's um, let's let's get into Fleming a little bit. So Tierman dies. Fleming takes the reins as the mm -hmm. editor, and he has it for three decades. Um, so right. how did how? So this is really when Chronicles begin to shift its identity and become the paleoconservative magazine that we recognize now. Absolutely. Yeah. No. No. I Paul mean, and, it, it, Paul and Fleming who came up with the term right paleoconservative. Right. Right. And you, and you found more strategic identity with, um, you know, the Lou Rockwell, Murray Rothbard crowd than you did with the neoconservatives. Yeah, yeah. There, there wasn't a period of alliance between the paleoconservatives and paleolibertarians, which goes all the way down into the late 1990s. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, I, uh, I think that the breakup of that alliance was regrettable. Uh, you know, and I've, Ed, both Ed and I are very much committed to restoring it to whatever degree that's possible. Um, uh, but there, there was a lot, we agreed on many things, you know, like uh, particularly after the communist empire had collapsed, we were not in favor of all kinds of foreign and military adventures. Uh, we were critical of immigration. Uh, there was a disagreement about free trade, which I think sort of got in the way, but I think that was unnecessary. Um, and uh, uh you know, if, if, you, if we spoke to Murray Rothbard or Rockwell, there wasn't that much of a philosophical difference between our, our sides. So that was a natural alliance. And the neoconservatives didn't like them any better than they liked us. Right. You know. Yeah, the, the, the first uh, center of this alliance was the John Randolph Club, which is a, a debating society that mm -hmm. the Rockford Institute and Chronicles founded, mm -hmm. but whose first president was Murray Rothbard who was associated with the Mises Institute. So from its very inception, it was kind of a joint endeavor from both Mises and the Rockford Institute. 
and it went on, you know, very harmoniously for for many years. I think the con- the context of the breakup in 1996 was the aftermath of um, Buchanan's. Um, I think I think it was his second presidential campaign, mm-hmm. and you know, the magazine's support for Buchanan and particularly the protectionist elements of his policy. Um, which Sam Francis defended in an article um, that Chronicles published called, it's one of his classic articles called From Household to Nation. Mm-hmm. And at the John Randolph Club um, meeting in 1996, Hans Hermann Hoppe, if you think about it, um, Francis was, was very much a disciple of James Burnham and a protege of Fleming, whereas Hoppe, of course, was a disciple of Mises and a protege of um, Murray Rothbard, who had died the year right. before in 1995. So, and, and Rothbard had really kept things together, you could say as well as Paul had, but Rothbard's death the next year, Hoppe made a critique and whether you want to say it was light or it was offensive, uh, people have differing viewpoints on who sure. started the fight, but Hoppe made a critique of, of Francis's From Household to Nation in his speech. And um, both Fleming and um, Francis took umbrage of that and Fleming fired back in a speech later that evening mm. and things collapsed around after that over this issue of really free trade and the element of protectionism in American policy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But before that, I mean, they were on really good terms um, and, and both both facets of this um of this uh, alliance supported Pat Buchanan. I mean, he was he was their man, and, right. and Pat Buchanan was on pretty good terms with everyone at Chronicles. Sounds like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and both sides supported Buchanan, even though the uh, the Mises people favored free trade. Right, I mean, that, that was not an obstacle to their support for Buchanan. I mean, Rothbard has a really interesting essay called The Franciscan Way. I mean, he was he was a lot more critical of Burnham, but he recognized in Francis. A series of lessons that that Francis had picked up from Burnham and mm-hmm. Rothbard was really praiseworthy of that of that essay and it's uh, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a Rothbard classic. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, yeah, he was um, uh, he 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 liked Sam Francis. Uh, both Hoppe and Francis, I think, he looked upon as you know uh, his protege, <laughs> uh, although they had very different views about about free trade. Mm-hmm. So that so that was in the nineties. Let me, let me let's just go back for a second here because before this time, um, Francis had gotten himself into hot water. And Ed, I know you you mentioned, uh, or, or if you want to mention, you know what exactly happened there. But yeah. but the immigration issue is really what began began to make Chronicles its own unique outlet. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the immigration issue. So do, I, let's let's talk about Sam Francis a little bit. So yeah, Sam Francis is still persona non grata on the right, um, particularly because I think after he was canceled, he became even more, I mean, he reacted to getting canceled by getting even more. <laughs> the things that got him canceled, he doubled and tripled down on. Mm-hmm. Um, but so Paul mentioned about how, you know, the neoconservatives have this relentless campaign to just make sure that even if they're friendly with you, They'll make sure that you don't get the appointments or whatever mm-hmm, it is mm-hmm. to undermine you. Well, this was the same thing that happened to Sam Francis in 1994. Now, this was the year that, for context, this was the year that um, the bell curve had been published, which mm-hmm, was mm-hmm. very divisive in the conservative world because of its chapters about the racial dimension of his intelligence, mm-hmm. right? So um, Sam Francis... Um, was at a, uh, a talk where he talked about that. He talked about and defended um, the concept of racial um, IQ. And he had been a columnist for the Washington Times. And Dinesh D'Souza, who was a uh, young upcoming, you know, um, neoconservative writer, had written about Francis's comments really took them out of context or portrayed them in the worst light possible and did a report about them and got him fired and canceled from the Washington Times because of his comments. Yeah, the, so neo-cons- that, that, the neoconservatives were the uh, cancel culturers before it was a thing. Oh, yeah, that's exactly what they were. <laughs> you got them right. <laughs> you can go all the way back to Buckley doing that too. He was perhaps right. the first one when he, you know, his comment about the fever swamps and, and sticking. Yeah. Yeah, right. I mean, he, he he was one of the first cancelers. So, mm-hmm. so that's so that's in the mid '90s. Um, but by that time, Chronicles was already willing 
to publish Francis. And, you know, he, he saw in Chronicles an outlet that wasn't going to budge on this issue. And so Chronicles at that time was already gearing up to be the Chronicles that we know today. Yeah, it's interesting, the, uh, the attacks that came upon Chronicles for, for racialism and so forth. Um, in my memory, I don't think, you know, these people got together and talked about race. But um, what happened, I, I think it was a reaction against, A, the denigration of white Southerners, um, and B, um, the attack on white people which was already coming, you know, the whites are bad people and the, the kind of stuff which has now become integral to the woke left. I think they were reacting against that. And uh, when, when the stuff about IQ came out, it, it's not that every one of them, you know, thought about IQ all the time, but the, I think the view then, and which is, this is certainly my view, uh, as I think it's a view of most paleoconservatives, why shouldn't people be allowed to talk about IQ differences? Why, why should it be forbidden? Um, if, if one could show that blacks had higher IQs, you know damn well the liberals would be pushing it every minute, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if they don't do as well as you know whites or Asians, therefore we're not we're not allowed to discuss this anymore. So uh, my my own reaction was in defense of you know freedom of inquiry and free speech, um, and the neoconservatives and the conservative movement went along with leftist bans. They've always gone along with leftist bans. And uh, I think Francis sort of begins this way, but then I think he, once he is attacked as a racialist, you know, he does move in that direction. You know, I mean, it's, it's hard to deny that if you look at some of the speeches that he gave toward the end of his life. Um, but I, I the things I think he said about I, race were quite reasonable, though, early on, and the, which he got attacked. They were, yeah, for, they're reasonable. That's, that's he true. Was, he was, you know, he was prescient as well. If you say that he was one of the first ones, I think, to say that, look, they're, they're going to start attacking. I mean, this was in the 90s. They're going to start relentlessly attacking white people just based on their whiteness and their mm-hmm. their colonizer attitudes, all these things. And, you know, all these other racial groups can, you know, they can create the double AC, double ACP. They can create the Jewish heritage thing. They can create you know all these uh, La Raza or, or Asian mm-hmm. identity groups. But the whites will not be allowed to create these things or to defend themselves in any way. And that's got to change. White white people have got to stop cringing around and stop being guilty for their identity and stand up for their heritage, the what the European heritage, which really helped create America. I don't think that's that unreasonable. No, I think it's an entirely reasonable position. But but by the way, if you notice the piece that, that Fleming wrote in 1989, his great concern there is that you will have these sort of racially separate communities and America will not be unified and so forth. The reality is the white race has declared war on itself or yeah. white and left. I mean, that's much worse than anything Fleming could possibly have imagined in 1989. And of course, I think Francis is aware that the country is moving in that direction. Yes, he knew it early. And by the way, this thing about not discussing IQ, there's this thing, you've made this point, Paul, and I think you've made it the best of anybody is, is, I remember when you wrote for us, um, you know, in in 2019, pointing out this, is that IQ is not the be all and end all. I know it's important to to turn a lot of outcomes and all this stuff, but Mm -hmm. as far as what makes person a good citizen, you've got a lot of these reasonably high IQ, Ivy League, say 120 IQ (laughs) midwits who are the biggest enemies. I mean, they're whites Mm -hmm. who are self-hating whites and they're the enemies of real American culture, Mm -hmm. what you would call real American culture. They're leftists who are destroying our culture mm-hmm. from the inside out. So I'd rather, much rather take someone with a lower IQ who has <laughs> some, some common sense and decent values which mm-hmm. than, than, than these really bright. Um, well, this is the same point that Amy Wax has been making, you know, with immigration too. It's like, you know, we have these highly successful corporate Indian leaders but that doesn't mean that they are consistent with the American culture. And so we should consider cultural things too. It's so the, the IQ thing is overblown. And of course it's, it's, it's really um, easy. It's a really easy weapon that can be uh, used against um, anyone who, you know, descends from orthodox in the prison or orthodoxy. Um, so, you, you know, you're, you're right, but Sam Francis, he anticipated um, this sort of what he called a revolution from the middle Mm-hmm. Um, in during the 1990s that really Trump took advantage of um, several years ago. I mean, he he was the candidate that the heartland, that the manufacturing sectors, they really looked mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was all anticipated by 20 years by Sam Francis. Yes. No, you're absolutely right. You know, he, he, he does. And 
And I said his his views on you know white self destruction are more prescient than the, the than the uh, concerns expressed by Tom Fleming and what I think is you know it was a brilliant essay, but I I think he does not see how really bad things were going to become. But I think Sam did. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, I agree with you about IQ. Uh, I don't think it is the most important factor in lo- looking at people. What bothers me is the unwillingness to discuss it. The fact that you know if you mention I've been I'm I've been thrown out of an organization for suggesting that there may be IQ differences <laughs> among groups, you're not even allowed to mention that these things exist, uh, particularly if white people do better than black people, and then you certainly are not allowed to mention this. And I think this is, this is part, this, what concerns me is the cringing abject behavior of white people uh, in all, all of this, um, that you know, we, we will not say or do anything which may offend uh, which may offend the woke leftist establishment. We'll just, you know, we'll go, we'll, we'll, this will be taken off the table. Anything you want, we'll take off the table, you know, as long as you don't cancel us. I think that there's going to be um, a part two of this discussion because there's so many more things that we can talk about getting into mm-hmm. the weeds. But I do want to begin to close up uh, on this note. We, so um, the, the phrase paleoconservative was kind of a 1990s artifact to um, make a distinction between what was happening in the conservative movement at large. Um, to what extent has conservatism actually failed and the posture that we should have shouldn't be so much conservatism as something perhaps more like a reactionary? Paul, you know, do you, I, want, I want you to talk about the failure of conservatism a little bit. You want to discuss it today, not next time. I want you to close on. <laughs> I want you to close on that and set it up for next time because, you know, this is a paleoconservative magazine and this is a paleoconservative mm-hmm. podcast. But um, the straits are more dire than they were twenty years ago when that frame when that phrase was uh, crafted. Yeah, let, 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 let me say that despite the fact, and Ed, Ed reminds me this all the time, that I say horrible things about cunning and the conservative establishment, they do some good. You know, I'm not denying that. I mean, if it were not for the conservative establishment, we would not have heard about Hunter Biden. Uh, we would not know, you know, anything about this, the, the the stupid remarks made by Pete Buttigieg. I mean, they 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 basically they they at least some of the people who are allowed into the establishment, like Miranda Devine and um, uh, Tucker Carlson, tell you the truth. Uh, although I know, in the case of Tucker, he has a somewhat uh, um, difficult relationship with the establishment, but they, they do tell you the truth. Uh, they also act as a gatekeeper to exclude those who are perceived as being too far on the right. And uh, most, most, a lot of their energy is devoted to keeping the right <laughs> isolated, as I right. pointed out. Right. Um, uh, the question, though, that we have to ask ourselves is, can't the right do better than having these, you know, these, these conservative gatekeepers who are always, you know, always looking to their left shoulder, over their left shoulder, and don't want to offend the the, the left too much, and and try to, you know, try to show they're woke. You know, this week they're for gay marriage, but they don't go all the way with gender reassignment yet, or they're for gender reassignment but not for kids. Uh, I mean, they, uh, they 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 seem to be making all these concessions to the left, uh, and while isolating more and more people on the right, particularly the younger generation on the populist right. And my, and my my response to this is we could do a hell of a lot better, you know, putting together an opposition to the left. Uh, this, this this is not a good opposition, considering uh, what you know what alternative oppositions would look like. Of course, it's a matter of finding funding and having your own television network and so forth. Um, but I, I would say, on the whole, the conservative establishment has done a lousy job of representing the right. Uh, and I think what it has done to the traditional right is inexcusable. You know, it has totally isolated people uh, because they're not on the same wavelength where the conservative establishment is as it tries to accommodate the left. Yeah, I, I think the entire function of conservative incorporated is to concede to the left and punch to the right. They absorb mm-hmm. what what could be a productive frustration in mm-hmm. middle America. They absorb it. And yes, they tell you things that are truthful, but then they don't do anything about it. And the function of telling people the truth on certain issues related to the Democratic Party is really, um, you know, it, it can be a way of absorbing energy without actually doing anything and keeping people pacified. So um, you were unusually 
um, kind in those statements to the conservative establishment. But Ed, do you have any last thoughts? And then we'll we'll close up. Yeah, I think a future issue of this podcast, we should discuss this. And we've, um, you know, in our Remembering the Rights series, which we've done every issue since Paul has become uh, editor in 2019, where we profile a conservative thinker from the past. We did one on Robert Louis Dabney um, in his first year as editor, Mm -hmm. who's a um, 19th century conservative thinker. And he's got a great quote about the subject, which is Mm -hmm. American conservatism is merely the shadow that follows (laughs) radicalism as it moves forward towards perdition. And I think that is uh, very true. The conservative American conservatives are always just what the left was 10 years or 20 years before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, just reading the first, uh, essay in the uh, January issue by Chairman, you know, he talks about, you know, the, the liberal culture and he's critiquing it from a conservative, but these are all things that uh, the conservative uh, media and Fox news, they're all on board with all of these things mm-hmm. that he's critiquing. These are, these are extremely controversial positions that were normal uh, when I was born 32 years ago. So it's, it's remarkable how far left the conservative movement continues Mm. to go year after year. So with that, we'll call it a wrap on our first episode. And um, there's so much more that we could talk about and are going to talk about. Um, But in the meantime, thanks for making this a successful launch. Thank you.